Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I am Katie Rich, and I'm here for this interview episode with Rebecca Ford. Hi. And David Gamfield. Hello. Uh, Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. We have interviews with two people who have made two very family-centric films, really uh, ideal Thanksgiving viewing in some ways and not in others. Uh, We were talking to Paul Dano of The Fablemans and James Gray, director of Armageddon Time. Uh, Let's hear from Paul Dano first. Uh, David, you got to talk to him. Uh, You saw The Fablemans at Toronto. We've been talking about it a lot as such an across-the-board, you know, powerful player this season. And Paul Dano, in some ways, gets talked about less because Michelle Williams is giving this big, expansive performance and then Judd Hirsch shows up for 10 big minutes. But Paul Dano is is kind of the heart of the movie, I think. And I'm imagining you think so, too, because you want to talk to him. Absolutely. And I think he feels that way to an extent. And as a real film fan, tapped into the fact that Steven Spielberg's films often explore father issues, and he is essentially playing his father, and both was going through the process of learning about this man and learning how to play him while kind of revisiting (laughs) Steven Spielberg's filmography a little bit through this uh, pretty intimate access. So uh, it was a unique experience for him and and definitely for me just hearing him sort of talk about exploring that. He's at an interesting place in his career. I think he became really famous when he was really young in Little Miss Sunshine and kind of had the like youthful boy face roles for such a long time. And now here he is playing like a dad, a dad of a lot of kids. And he played the Riddler earlier this year in a big superhero movie. He's kind of taking swings that it doesn't feel like he would have five years ago. And it all seems to really be paying off for him. Yeah, he it's a very conscious choice. He talks a lot about feeling ready for those kinds of steps uh, in his career. I also told him I'm personally thrilled that it's been an excellent year for the Swiss Army Man crew between <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe in Weird and the Daniels, of course, and everything everywhere all at once. Uh, and Paul, who's had an excellent major year. He doesn't usually have a couple movies out in the same year, especially ones as significant as these. So he's taking it in, uh, and I think... Feel, you know, it's it's interesting to hear his insights on, you know, what that experience has been like and why he's forging ahead in that way. Well, let's hear Paul Dano tell you all about it. Uh, okay, Paul. So uh, Steven Spielberg asks you to play his father. What <laughs> what does that conversation look like exactly? Well, um, I got a text saying Steven. Spielberg wants to meet you. Text him back saying, great. Uh, you know, just tell me when. <laughs> um, I was really nervous to meet him. And I, as soon as he started speaking, I was uh, taken aback at how sort of emotionally open and, and available and, and intuitive he was. And, and I was put at ease pretty quick. And our first meeting was actually a, a conversation I really enjoyed and felt good about. Um, and when he told me what the film was about, which I didn't know going into the Zoom, uh, I had a big feeling. And and uh, I've said this now, but I'm not an actor who like thinks they should play every part, you know, or mm-hmm. even wants to play every part. But as soon as he told me what it was about, I really thought, oh, this sounds right. Like I I hope this works out. And I also felt like it was uh, big for him, which is strange to say at this point in his career. But it felt like a step in some way or a risk or uh, something like that. As an artist, I was like, okay, this is, this is what I want to see him do. And this will get, this will be, this sounds vital. And then I got to read the script, which was really beautiful uh, that him and Tony Kushner wrote. And we talked again. And then finally we had a third Zoom. Okay. Okay. You know, and the third Zoom was just Stephen with a cigar and saying, I think you'll make my dad proud. And I was like, okay, you know, um, so that's, and it, that, that felt good. Yeah. That's pretty lovely. Um, what about it struck you as feeling right? As you say, like what, 
did you connect to on that level? Well, I think family, the American dream, like just every, it, it just sort of the first few things he told me art, you know, like I was like, okay, like this is me one, but hmm. two, I, I think literally just seeing in him what he was already putting on the line, just in a first zoom also sort of opened something to go, Oh, I, I feel I could step into that somehow. And I think for me, timing wise in my life, I wanted to be working with this part of myself, so to speak, meaning what's it mean to be a partner? What's it mean to be a parent? Um, what's it mean to be an adult? And, and it felt sort of like, um, yeah, just a part of like the next step for me, Paul, as a artist or something. Hmm. So as you, as you got deeper into it, what kind of access did you have into this man's life, his biography, into Stephen's relationship with him? I'm, I'm, like, what was the level of distance between your own interpretation and the fact that you were working off of, you know, working in essentially a memoir? Yeah, so that that evolved, and I had so many resources. Uh, Stephen himself, and then an incredible, sort of almost embarrassing access to Stephen's family and his family archives. You know, uh, eight millimeter footage, photographs. Um, his father was a rather brilliant computer engineer, and so there was interviews that his dad had done and he, he was also in World War II so there was interviews about that that had been sort of recorded and Stephen's sisters would come to set and you, you know um, but mimicry or imitation was not of interest to anyone I don't think on this so I think it was more about capturing the essence of Arnold and bringing that through Bert and I do think it's different um, and, uh, and then there's Paul somewhere in there, whether we like it or not, just like you just can't, you know, that's why you're, there's some, you, there's a reason you're asked to be there, no matter how different from yourself you want to be or how transformative, there's some part of your unconscious that's coming along. So I would say that it evolved. And I think that it was one of the fun things about this shoot was that it was quite living and breathing, meaning Stephen had his memories but he's an adult now seeing those memories and he's a storyteller in between those. So there's like three parts of him at work. Tony was there and we were all there. So there was something about it that felt very alive, even though it started from uh, memory or memoir or autobiography and it, and it did indeed have to find its own life. Hmm. Yeah. I, I spoken to Judd Hirsch, uh, co-star in the film it was one, incredibly memorable scene uh and, and he mentioned seeing steven get emotional as they were filming i'm uh, not to say you had the same experience but i'm wondering if you did you know it's a different kind of relationship with a director right that you are playing these scenes that are going to be affecting him in some way it is and again i think steven's sort of uh, vulnerability was actually a gift to us because I think from, from crew to the actors, like it sort of, it was clear that the stakes were there for this person. And, and I think it only opened the door for us to be just as uh, open. And I did find it at times to be a heavy cloak to bear just because his father and him didn't always see eye to eye, so to speak, or, you know, but also there were times when Stephen perhaps was emotional and I'm sure some part of me, Paul wanted to check in with Stephen, but I think Bert sort of would hold me back from doing that sometimes because I don't think his father always knew how to show his emotions. I think his father felt deeply actually, but he, I think he kept it to himself largely. And I think he did for the sake of his family, partially at least. Um, I always sort of saw Bert as the grounding because Mitzi and Sammy were the storm, you know, somebody has to, to, to be the grounding. And um, so there were times where I didn't know what energy was sort of at, at work, so to speak. And, and that said, it was also sort of wondrous uh, as an experience as a whole and, and my relationship with Steven, but I, I, and it wasn't always uh, easy. <laughs> 
Right. You mentioned um, feeling this was like the right next step for you as an artist, as an actor. So more broadly, I'm curious, like, did you feel different as an actor given all those different conditions? And did you find yourself making, you know, different kinds of choices, preparing in different ways? Was What were some of the other nuances, I suppose, of what felt fresh about this? Yeah, well, I would say that preparation, maybe, maybe less so, although, yes, the parts of yourself that you're sort of opening the door to, right, the rooms you're opening in yourself, so to speak, were different because of the material. And again, it was, it was the first time really bringing a lot of my own parent, my, me as a parent to, mm-hmm. to the table and, and what my, my, my present family means to me, not my past or something. And, but I tried to approach most preparation. I always try to let the character lead. Uh, there's things you do every time and I try to let the character lead the way. And so for being an engineer, I really just tried to build the character, so to speak. So, you know, I started, one of the first things I did was draw a stick figure and think, okay, how do I, you know, get to this? You know, what part of Arnold's past is going to help bring me there? And where is his center of energy? Like Stephen didn't want me to gain weight, but Arnold's energy center felt very different than mine. It felt much more, um, it felt a little, I would say mine's a little higher and his was a little lower. So how do I uh, move my, you know, it, just yeah. things like that. And I sort of, so I tried to follow the, this sort of engineer mindset but then there's a big part of the work that's very emotional or spiritual or whatever you're going to want but what was really different was the essence of the sort of fuel that you're running on was about my current life slash about Arnold or Bert in that circumstance um, where I just haven't gone to work many times and had my daughter's smile flashed through my eyes before you, you know so to speak mm. right like doing the batman that's not part of the um <laughs> well you, you never know <laughs> you, you, you never know but i just mean so i, I don't like want to sort of over speak on it but i think that yes it felt like a slightly different type of fuel that i was running on and and i i liked that you know i welcomed that and i wanted that and you, you know i think that's just part of, of, of your life changing and growing too. Hmm. The other side of it that I find interesting is, you know, you work in this industry, chances are you're a big fan of Steven Spielberg. And, you know, I found watching the movie, you get this incredible insight into who he is as an artist, where he's coming from with a lot of his, his films and his characters. Did you think about him as a director in a different way? His films, many of which deal with fatherhood in various ways, your character does in some ways loom over his entire filmography to an extent. Well, sure. Yeah. I mean, first of all, revisiting his work before going to make the film was such a pleasure one, but yes, of course, uh, seeing so much of it there in so many different ways too, right? Like, so even his, him calling his mom, Peter Pan, like, and then, Oh, okay. He made hook. Like, you know, like, yeah. Okay. Like, (laughs) But what I really find fun for the audience, and I, I won't point out to any of them, but there's there's so many that aren't just the films he directed. Mm. There's moments that have to do with films he produced or helped create the story for or help. Do you know what I mean? So it's not even just, you know, what Steven directed. Um, it's like him, you know, there's stuff he produced that I see in the film, you know, and I go, and some of that wasn't, maybe I wouldn't even know on the page too. Like there's a a shot I'm thinking of with the way the light works coming out of the closet. And I, for me, I was like, oh shit, I didn't even, like, I feel like that's another thing, you know, like it's just, (laughs) it's just a part of his childhood that made it, you know, came through him later. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it was pretty incredible to be at the Chinese theater the other night. The way Stephen was introduced and the way he spoke, you know, there's not that many people who have like, I mean, shaped culture, right? Y- y- you know, and then to be there with other artists along with him who have like John Williams, and you're just like, wow, this is I'm very, real, very fortunate. Yeah, and yeah, to see it as a kind of origin story in the movie, I, I yeah, I thought that was incredibly moving and and just 
interesting <laughs> on a purely yeah. cinephile level. So, yeah, this I think this is the first year in quite some time where you've had two films out in the same year. Um, mm. This and Batman are of very different scales <laughs> and appeals. Um, but, you know, both come from major studios. There are major expectations attached to them. Did you sense that signing on, given the way you like to work, the time you like to take, that these are both in their own way pretty major undertakings? Yeah. And I mean, you know, Batman was actually, I mean, because of the pandemic, it got split up. But that was, it wasn't quite a year gap between the Batman and Fablemans, but almost for me. So, like, that also, it just worked out because of COVID and release schedule that they came out in the same year. Right. Otherwise, they would not have. But um, yes, I really loved doing the Batman. I was really su- almost surprised by how much I loved uh, being in Gotham and like getting dorky obsessed with the <laughs> comics. And I was actually surprised also by like loving like the, the culture around it because you know, the people are, they were so passionate about Batman. And, and that's the one I've always thought is kind of like, the coolest, you know, or, or just the, the, yeah. maybe the, maybe the richest. Um, and so I would say that was a big deal and a big deal for me. You know, I think it's something that again, like the way that your life and, and work goes together, like um, I think I was more ready for like, you, you know, what, what comes with that kind of movie. Right. Now I think I know myself enough where I, I started acting young and I think I always, Uh, protected myself which has worked out luckily but I think part of that was just being sturdy enough to go well this is who I am as an actor and that's what I gotta be like you know I think when you're young you sometimes feel like you have to be other things to fit in or you know Hollywood and blah blah blah. and um yeah I couldn't be I mean the 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 characters are I, I I would consider fairly far apart from each other Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> and so, again, like Fableman's Burt, in a way, was sort of an antidote to that other energy because it was about playing somebody who is decent and full of integrity. And I think loving, even if, even if at times trouble showing it. Hmm. Would you say you consciously resisted, say, like a comic book movie before? Not to say I don't know what kind of offers you were getting or anything like that, but as a genre you mentioned feeling ready for it. Was it more a matter of like right place, right time, or you were actively not wanting to do that for a little while? Well, no, both. I mean, when I say that, I mean, like when I was, I was, when I was in little miss sunshine, for example, you know, I was 21 maybe when it came out and I went back to college for a semester instead of taking the jobs that were coming my way. Cause I was, I was just, I needed like to be going at my own speed. Right. You know, that's just who I was. And, I think the same thing after There Will Be Blood came out. I think went back to college for a semester. And I was like, this is, you know, like, so I just think I had to kind of set my own pace. And and I don't know why, but that's just what it was. Um, and there's a risk in that. And, and I, I, uh, I feel fortunate that I'm still, you know, still, still getting to, to do it. Um, and then I think part of it is also the, the right thing. Right. So I, I mean, I would have another time from now. Um, but if you're lucky to make things that you also want to see, that's a pretty good feeling. So like this was also the right one to, to try to get her to say yes to, I mean, I think Matt's a, Matt's a real deal. Matt Reeves is a real deal filmmaker. And I was really impressed by, by him and, and his script and, so it's a combination of things, yeah. Hmm. Um, I was struck realizing that one of the most recent films you did before this year was um, Swiss Army Man, uh, which is fun. It's fun to see the Swiss Army Man crew all having a big year this year. Oh, my God, right? I'm so I'm so happy for those guys. They're just, I mean, I knew, you know, I, I, yeah. Uh, Swissy is a, that, that's, I loved making that film. And that was one where at the time, I think every two to five years I have to kind of re um, figure out why I'm doing what I'm doing. And that was a moment I remember being like, I need to go like have fun again. Like I need to go be <laughs> a kid. Like, you know, maybe. And like, that was something I needed, you know, and I yeah. saw those guys work and these, I mean, these guys 
I mean, you know, voice is like hard to like, there's people who are good shooters. There's some really good storytellers, but like people who got a voice, like I, I saw their videos before knowing they were going to make a film. And I was like, these guys have something, you know? So it's been really wonderful to see them, you know, have uh, the year they're having with everything they're all It's just lovely. They are certainly singular. I think that is safe to say. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah. And I'm hoping more now more people see Swiss Army Man because I, I, I have good feelings about it. I mean, for me, the 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 uh, the opening scene of that movie is still still uh, one of my one of my favorite uh, moments that I've gotten to do. That's like that's going in the canon. Like long term, <laughs> I I would agree with you, <laughs> or it should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, to the point of having fun, I I was so interested to see that you're you've been writing these Riddler comics um, mm. to uh, go along with the film. That's a real engagement with fandom that I nece- wouldn't have necessarily expected from you, given that it was your first comic book movie. So how have you found both the writing of that and just generally being pretty steeped in that world? Well, it's so, I mean, it's so, first of all, so when I started kind of cultivating the backstory for Edward Nash and Riddler, like, I tried to do it a little bit from like an archetypal language like comic books have. So just to kind of be, and in my head, I, I was like, I think this could actually be kind of a comic, you know, but, but like sheepishly to myself. And then on set, I said something to my Reeves once, I think it was on my last nights of filming. He was like, that should be a comic. And I was like, I, I think it could be. And, um, Again, that I was surprised too. Like the Batman, like reopens like a door. Like you know, it's like I, I did read comic books as a kid, and but th- there was something more than that. I don't know. Um, now I never would have thought I'd want to spend more time with Edward Nash or the Riddler, just because it is like a. It's a you know. I mean, he, he, I'd say it's dealing with themes of trauma and there's he, a certain he, darkness. He, yeah, he, yeah. So, but man, the comic has been so fun. And I'm really happy when I'm learning, like, so to dork out about sequential art and color theory, like get into all these things and like write it and work with this wonderful artist, this Serbian artist who hasn't done a comic here in the U S who I, uh, like it's been great. I've really enjoyed it. It also allowed me to be dad for a while. I would take my daughter to school. I would go to, I would rent a little office by her school. I would go there and work on the comic. And then I would be able to be done. So like, it's like, it was again, like something I needed that I never knew I would have needed. And I really like it. Um, and I'm having lots of fun and, and issue two will, yeah, it'll come out like late December. Um, so there'll be six of them. It's, it's, it's cool. Yeah, that's great. That's great. You know, hearing you talking about the periods after Little Miss Sunshine and There Will Be Blood, there's a kind of confidence, I would say, in being able to be like, I need to go to school for a semester. <laughs> After this, especially given it's it's a pretty overwhelming period, I would imagine, for a 21, 22-year-old. On the flip side of that, when you look back at that period, attention around that period, and that have followed various other things, is there something key that you have picked up along the way that you maybe didn't have at the beginning uh, that you can carry with you in moments like this? Yeah, well, I want to say that it did not feel like confidence at the time. Okay, it, I, it, I'm it, saying it, in retrospect. <laughs> no, no, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But to, to, and, and I and I kind of agree, actually. Like, oh, well, okay, Jesus. Like, but I think it was. Um, there's just, I think maybe I'm shy. Like, I just was mm-hmm. not. You know, um, no, I think it was like more like more hiding than confidence. It was like, oh shit, people have seen me. Like, you know, like it's right. it's. Uh, um, but again, I, I feel very lucky that I can I actually think that's what I needed, you know, and, yeah. and, and luckily I'm still kind of, you know, uh, what if I picked up? Yeah, I think, um, I honestly think a big part of the battles, just knowing yourself enough to kind of not get thrown around in the wind too much because right now, right? Like we're going to, we've got the Fablemans and, and that's a high, right? You know, and, Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes there's a low and I think you got to enjoy the highs, you know, and, and you got to feel the lows, but, and I'm saying this because I, I mean, I started, I did my first Broadway play when I was 10, I think, 10 mm-hmm. or 11 with George C. Scott and Charles Drew. So like, I'm in like, so I think having come from being a child actor, I think it's really about knowing yourself and, and, and growing into your adult self. You, you know, that would be my 
the personal part of it for me. I don't know what it is for anybody else. And, uh, you know, now this time I'll try to just yeah, enjoy myself a little bit more rather than feeling so, um, you know, uh, yeah. So now, Rebecca, let's hear your conversation with James Gray, who uh, revisited his own childhood and, and some similar and some not similar ways to what Steven Spielberg does in The Fablemans. He's made Armageddon Time, set in Queens in the 1980s, of, in a lot of ways similar to the story of his own youth. And he makes these movies that are like kind of dark and sometimes depressing. But everything I hear is that he's the most fun person to talk to. He was such a joy to talk to and made me love this film more because you can, he can really break down his thought process on the casting, on the storytelling in a way that I think is just so fascinating to listen to. Uh, yeah, what were some of the highlights of what you got into? Well, this is interesting for the Thanksgiving episode because I think a lot of it is sort of about uh, you know, the relationship with his own father. Um, his father was alive when he was writing this film. And when they were shooting it, he, you know, sadly passed away from COVID um, before it came out. But he told me I was the first person to ever ask him what his dad thought about him making a movie about his childhood. Mm. So it was really interesting to hear both that and what his brother thought of the film when it was done. Yeah, Armageddon Time also has a great dinner table scene. It's got a couple of them. So if you're, you know, at the Thanksgiving table with your family and you want to see something maybe even more chaotic than what you experience, that's uh, one of many reasons to watch Armageddon Time, I think. So, Rebecca, let's hear your conversation with James Gray. I'm so excited to welcome writer and director of Armageddon Time, James Gray, to the podcast today. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for letting me come on here and talk to you. Of course. I saw Armageddon Time for the first time way back in Cannes, and I've been thinking about it since and, and saw a more recent version of the film as well. But I'm curious for you where it all started. Like, at what point did you think you might want to tell this story that is, you know, a little more personal and tied to your to your own childhood? Is this something that was in your mind for a long time? It's funny because... Uh, I mean, I do this too, but people assume that, you know, you write a script in one day, you shoot the film the next day, and it's released the day after that. The truth is, is that these things are years in the making. And the script was originally written, I started to think of it in 2018, and I finished it uh, in 2019. So this is, it's weird because it was before, uh, you know, January 6th and all of that Trump election denial and George Floyd and Black Lives Matter, all that stuff. So uh, it's a strange feeling to have it come out now. But I, I had been really telling bedtime stories to my children and they love hearing you know, some true stories about my childhood. I, I, I don't know quite why. Maybe it's, it means that my skill set for fantasy or fable is just pathetic <laughs> but they loved the they loved the true stories. And one day they said, "We want to see where you grew up, Daddy." So we were driving across the 59th Street Bridge, and as we pulled off into Queens Boulevard, and we were in, uh, driving to my house, and they they were so unimpressed with the space. You know, they said, "Dad, this is so this is so lame, Dad." I mean, I don't know what they thought. They thought my house would look like you know Shangri La or something. <laughs> but um, what I started to think about when I was there was frankly a kind of ghost story that all of these people who had inhabited this house, there was maybe a little bit of paint on the wall from my model rockets, but most of it, there was no evidence that my important family dinners and these important family gatherings, and, you know, almost everybody at the time, it was only my father and my brother, my father has since died, uh, they're all gone. And it, it, there was something beautiful and sad about the ephemerality of our lives that became emphasized to me, and this was in 2018. So I, I really started on the path of sort of a self-examination around that time. And when did it really focus in on this time in your childhood? When, you, when did you sort of figure out that was the story to tell? I've always thought that 1980 represents a big sea change in the country's history, but also strangely in my own life. I, I was very obsessed with the Beatles and Muhammad Ali, they were sort of the two heroic sort of tent poles of my cultural existence at the time. Ali was indefatigable. You know, he was like this incredibly funny, brilliant guy who, who would never lose a match. And I remember I had this comic book on my wall that I had cut out. It was, I, it was called Superman versus Muhammad Ali. And yes, that is an actual DC comic. <laughs> 
I didn't get the rights to it, so I couldn't put it on the wall. But <laughs> he, he seemed like he would never lose, and he had you know beaten Spinks and come back. And then in September of 1980, he lost in humiliating fashion to Larry Holmes. And of course, just a couple of months later, John Lennon was killed. And it was a big deal because both the Beatles and Ali were gone. And the 1960s, the 70s, which had been this sort of hangover from the 60s, the 60s finally felt over. Now, does this mean as a 12-year-old or an 11-year-old at the time that I was sitting around thinking about the 60s? No. But I did read Mad Magazine a lot, and I, I, I weirdly had a cultural awareness of like Ralph Nader from, mm. from, from Mad. And these figures were very important. In Ronald Reagan's election, these things were a sea change in the culture of America. And also, of course, this personal story, which seemed to, in some strange way, reflect that. So that became the whole MO for the film. In the personal, find the big story. Mm -hmm. And tell me about casting the actors who play your parents and your grandfather, because I'm so curious how you go about that when you you know, have this real person in your mind and you're trying to find an actor for them. Were, did Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong come into your mind early in this process or was it sort of more of a search for the right person? In the case of Annie, uh, she was very early on attached uh, because of uh, an incredible visual similarity with my mother and a, the ability to conjure my mother was like uncanny. I had never, I'm, I'm going to have to admit this to you, I never heard of Jeremy Strong, which is a total embarrassment. Um, his agent called me up and, and basically said, would you ever have a Zoom with Jeremy Strong? And of course, being an idiot, I said, I, I don't know who that is. And my wife, who's like a genius, basically said, oh, my God, you're an idiot. You don't know who Jeremy Strong is. You're so out of it. Because all I do is watch old movies and read uh -huh. old books, you know. Right. So then I watched Succession. I thought, oh, this guy's quite amazing. And when I Zoomed with him, I loved him. And he is he has basically captured my own father in a way that is eerie. I mean, it's bizarre. And mm -hmm. my brother just saw the film for the first time, and he found it strangely uh, both gratifying and upsetting to see my father's image uh, come back to life. In the case of Tony Hopkins, um, I just, he was my, you know, I just sent it to him, and, you know, it's a kind of Hail Mary, and somehow he said he wanted to do it. So I was just lucky in that case, I think. Yeah. And so how much did Anne Hathaway and Jeremy Strong come to you and and ask about your own parents? And how much did you sort of allow them to find the characters themselves? It's a great question. It's, a, it's in a way, the principal challenge, because what you don't want to do is, uh, I did not want the kind of rich little impersonation of my parents. Uh, I wanted them to bring beautiful things because they're great actors. They can bring beautiful things to the table. So I gave them as much as I could, as little as I could get away with. You know, they would ask me for family albums or whatever. Or I would send them some stuff. They'd say, but well, this is all we're getting. I say, yes, it's all you're getting. And then they would go around me. To, they would go to the production uh, design department and see the photos that they had <laughs> been given, all that. So they wound up getting a lot of stuff. In the case of Jeremy, because my mother has been dead for many, many years. But in the case of Jeremy, he made me video my father answering the Proust questionnaire. And my mm. father, at the time, like I said, still alive. So I put him... Uh, my, my daughter actually videoed my, my father answering these questions. So he had that to go by. But, you know, it's funny. I encouraged them to take it on their own. And they always wound up coming back to my parents. I mean, even in improvisation, I remember there was a, a scene, very simple, a car drives up after the funeral. And somehow, Jeremy Strong gets out of the car and he says to the kids, lock the doors which is exactly what my father used to say all the time. I never told him to wear that hat. My father wore that kind of hat. Never told him to wear that kind of jacket. My father wore that jacket. And, and Annie did the same thing. She gets out of the car. She turns her back to the kid. She refuses his touch. My mother used to do exactly the same thing. So clearly, they understood something emotionally honest about it uh, and emotionally direct, and they were able to show it. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing. I mean, I sort of expect nothing less from those two actors, just when you look at the work they've done. And and I know a lot has been written about Jeremy's um, method of acting, but I am curious as a director, how do you sort of 
handle when actors, you know, need different things to perform? I mean, did you find his method different than Anne's and difficult to sort of balance? First, let me say every actor's method is different. Mm-hmm. You know, there, 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 I mean, we, we joke all the time about the method, but yeah. in fact, even the method if one is in the weeds on this, there was Stella Adler's method and Stanislavski's method and, and Lee Strasberg, who's a lot, a lot of the actors, studio people hated all this stuff. So you're always faced with a need to put everybody on the same playing field. Mm-hmm. So what I try to do as the director is never get in the weeds of technique. Never say, um, how are you getting to where you need to be? So for example, for Tony Hopkins, it's all about the outside in. Once I gave him my father, my grandfather's hat and my grandfather's tie and all that, he was like, oh, it's very good, very good. And so the, the British actors tend to work from the outside in. Mm, in other words, what is my skin? And that dictates my soul. Whereas American actors like Jeremy, they'll work from the inside. I want to understand the core of the person and then that dictates what I wear. But that's inside baseball. Mm-hmm. When you get to the set, you have the scene that you're playing. And what I find is the better the actor, usually the simpler the direction. For Tony, I would say in between takes, I would say, okay, this time try it like it's a benediction for the boy. Oh, yes, yes, it's benediction. Or for Jeremy, I would say, I want you to be just a little more hostile towards him. He's getting you angry. Boom. Then he would play it. So you see what I'm saying? It does yeah. become a level playing field. Mm-hmm. Um Maybe you can tell me a little bit about the part of the film where you put Marianne Trumpberry in it and played by Jessica Chastain and, and sort of your decision for that to be a part of the story and, and sort of the messaging that she's giving in this speech to the kids. You know, when we talk about these issues, they're in American life, both uh, in an obvious and in not obvious way, these layers of privilege and what sometimes people uh, simplify as, I think, grotesquely oversimplify as white guilt, for example. It's, there's, there are, you can be the oppressor and the oppressed at the same time. And sometimes uh, people forget that history is incredibly complex. It's like, a, it's like trying to peel away the layers of an onion. You can never get to the core. And when I first got to that school, um, I remember thinking I was king of the hill. And the first thing I did was run into Fred Trump, who basically was overtly anti-Semitic to me. And we went to the assembly and she gave a speech that Fred Trump's daughter, Donald Trump's sister, gave a speech. And I remember even at that age, listening to this person who, as Ann Richards uh, made a joke about George W. Bush, I remember in 1988, I think it was, um, no, maybe it was late. It was 2000. I can't even remember now. But she, I think she said something like, uh, born on third base and thinks he hit a triple. Mm. And so that was the entire uh, Marion Trump speech. She basically was talking about how hard she had to struggle to get to where she wanted to be. And even as a boy, I thought that was insane. I kept saying, well, what do you mean? You're worth all these zillions of dollars. Yeah. And so I, I felt that that including that speech, which actually happened, was essential to illustrate that American life is so layered and so complex. And in some ways, the issues are deeply intractable in a way that is quite upsetting because you can't simplify it. It's hard to get to the core of it. So that's why I felt it was important. Yeah. And when you were writing the story or maybe it's more in the editing process. Was it more difficult than your other films to either cut or, you know, just really make, get it to the final version because it is a more personal story? You know, I would have said no. I would have said it was easier in some ways, but that's a complete lie because what happened was shooting it, I must have been in some state of denial. Mm. Um, We were shooting maybe 90 feet from where I grew up. We shot in front of my public school. I mean, we were right there. I tried to get, look, you always fail uh, in some ways. Everybody does. But I tried to get as absolute, I was really obsessed, I have to say, with the details, get the right lunchbox, get the right shirt, get the, I mean, I was a nut, I'm sure. Um, And at the time, I was like, this is all coming together. It's where the actors are great, all that. And then uh, you get to the editing room. And all of a sudden, I was seeing my house and my school, mm-hmm. and it felt like a weird Beatlemania version of my 
childhood, like, you know, a, like a Beatles cover band. Like it's not actually it, but it's a simulate. It's very weird. And I started to get uh, stressed out. And in the end, um, I got very uh, uneasy about when I would have to remove a scene or when oh, yeah. I'd have to add lines or make a small change for story concerns that didn't actually literally happen, you know, this kind of thing. As it is, it holds to the details pretty accurately. But, you know, there's minor changes and contractions in time that had to happen. Yeah. And so what was the experience like for you to watch it with an audience? I, well, I mean, I assume Can was the first time. Well, um, if I may drop his name, Steven Soderbergh said the best thing ever about Can once. He said that it's like watching every frame of your movie last for 30 seconds. Can is a, a strange place and not really perfect for the debut of a film, particularly an American film. They they it's a fishbowl. It's the reaction is never analogous to the wide reaction later, in some ways good and in some ways bad. You you realize that, you know, you, you go there and you're in a black tie, your dinner jacket, you're sitting there, you know, it's like this, you don't move, you're, the movie is playing, you're worried that when it ends, everyone will boo or everyone will cheer, that's great. And so you, 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 you're not conscious of the film at all. And I, the only, the first time I watched it since then, um, the first time I watched it with an audience was in Telluride. And that was tremendously uh, gratifying and, and actually, by the way, played considerably better than I think it did in Cannes for a variety of reasons, I think, not least of which is that the movie was actually finished. Mm. Um, I was really frustrated. In Cannes, I went with a three-day temp mix. And also there was you know dialogue I hadn't yet recorded from Tony Hopkins and there was music I hadn't yet recorded. But you throw caution to the winds at some point. So yeah. Telluride was the first time and, and I found the, sh the, moment, the, the, the screening shocking. Shocking. Yeah, because like, they were laughing. Well, they were laughing at things that I hoped they would laugh at, which was great. But also, you never know what moments of silence mean. Uh, you don't know whether they're being affected. I'll tell you, uh, here's a perfect example. Um, I was shocked that the audience was laughing as Jeremy Strong was running up the stairs to punish his son when his son had locked himself in the bathroom. They were laughing which I was very concerned about. And then right after he bashes through the door, there was silence. It was a very unusual response that I did not predict. So you know what the great screenwriter Ernest Lehman, Ernest Lehman once wrote, or he said, he said, uh, you think you've got all the answers and then the audience tells you everything you never knew. I think what's interesting with this film is people have really strong reactions to, you know, Paul, the character based on yourself and, and what happens with his friend. And, and I'm curious, have you heard from people reactions that have surprised you or how do you how does it sort of sit with you the way the reactions are to that part of the, the end of the story? I haven't heard much. I try to block it out because one of the things one learns if one is a huge fan of movies is frankly that that kind of thing, it doesn't really last. Time mm. has a very strange way with movies, and sometimes it's very nice to them, and sometimes it's very mean to them. What I can say in some limited fashion is I did not make a film in order to advertise the virtues of American capitalism. And if people have a problem that a terrible thing happens in the film – that's it's my job to express a truth as I saw it, not to promote a fantasy where you know Johnny becomes the chairman of Comcast at the end. I, I right. can't. That's it's it's like a it's like you know that that's that's actually to me a, 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 a dare I use this word a rather immature approach to art. You know, it's not like you know you look at. Uh, Guernica by Picasso and, 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 and there's like a bright sun in the background of the painting, you know, right. to make sure that Franco's going to go away. Right. It's not the way the world is. And I was trying to make a film that reflects the way the world was as I saw it. And it's also so personal and, and intimate, a movie, that a counterfactual it didn't make any sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I don't know exactly the response to which you speak, but what limited of the information I've gotten 
I, I have to just express what happened. Of course. Yeah. Uh, I read recently that you're, you're thinking about a sequel. Is this a real idea? Tell me about this. <laughs> it's such a weird thing. I mean, you say one thing and, you know, I, I just wanted to work with those actors again. Yeah, I love them. Course. And, <laughs> um, you know, there's the, the, the thing that you're trying to do always is express yourself directly, I think. And one of the great things about the movies, it's the closest thing we have to a dream state, really. It's like, it's why I, I actually, I do think in, in reference to the question I just answered, mm -hmm. unhappy things, unhappy endings in movies are so angering to people because mm -hmm. it's like you have such a close identi identification with the movie. It's like, you know, somebody's unwrapping a Snickers bar behind you in a movie, right? And you want to kill that person because yeah. it's like somebody intruding on your dream. And when the dream ends unhappily, just in life, don't you wake up and you're like, oh, and sometimes it wrecks your day yeah. just as if a dream is a happy dream or an, a, a sort of almost euphoric dream. You wake up and there's a profound disappointment that it wasn't real. So the best endings in the cinema tend to be actually like Shakespearean histories, both, you know, sort of bitter and sweet, like The Graduate or something. That's yeah. like a perfect movie ending. No spoilers if you haven't seen The Graduate, but that's that's sort of a perfect ending. Yeah. And, and so when I talk about this idea of a sequel, really what I'm trying to do is keep expressing myself, keep delving into the dream of, of allowing you into my consciousness for a moment, because that to me is the purpose of, of cinema. And so your, your father obviously knew you were making this movie. I know you mentioned he's passed away at this point, but how did he feel when he knew that you know, his, part of his story was going to be in a movie like this. I think his reaction, you know, he, he was such a, I had a, I was on very good terms with him when he died. And it was, uh, I mean, death is never pleasant, but it was, uh, you know, he died of COVID and I, I couldn't see him and he was uh, in isolation and all of that. And I remember him just saying to me the last time I spoke to him, which was on the telephone, his voice was really raspy. And he just said, uh, knock him dead, kid, knock him dead. And I don't, I think he compartmentalized. I told him what it was, but he would have the reaction where he would just kind of go like this. And he, I mean, you can't see me, but it's sort of like, he would just sort of nod and purse his lips. I don't, I don't know if he could let it in. Hmm. And I have to confess to you now, something that sounds almost cruel, but I must be honest, I feel almost a sense of relief that he never saw it. Hmm. I'm not happy, of course, that he died, but I, not having to show him the film, um, it's it's relieving. Hmm. And what was your brother's reaction? You said he recently saw the whole thing. My brother was a big fan, but he, uh, my brother is, um, I'm very close with him now. He's an amazing guy. He's a brilliant man. And he's one of the funniest people of all time. And he, you know, he just said, you know, he just was commenting about how it seemed like an eerie recreation. And um, I don't, I think he was unprepared for that part of it. But he yeah. said, you know, he said he loved it and he's honest with me. So yeah, it worked out. I'm surprised you didn't consider showing it to him before it was done as being one of the people who knows these characters the best, obviously. Well, I was on the phone with him. I want to be clear. I was on the phone with him like about 500 times a day mm. during the shoot and before, trying to get all the details right. So I would ask him, for example, Ed, what was the plate, the, the plate silverware? What was the plates? What did they look like? And he has an incredible memory. He's also older, but he was like, oh, they were white with a green floral pattern. What was the chandelier like? Also, my father was an incredible, a terrible photographer, but a prolific photographer. And so we had <laughs> hundreds of photographs to, to go by. And he was a great resource, my brother. And like I said, for example, when I had to do that Marianne Trump speech, I asked him to write it down as best he could remember it. And I did the same thing. And we sort of compared notes. Mm. Uh, and they were exactly the same. So it made me feel much more comfortable that I was recreating it accurately. But I didn't want him, frankly, to influence my attempt to make it as honestly for me because right. it's my own perspective, not his. 
And I didn't want that influence. I didn't want, frankly, to go soft on myself or him or my parents. I wanted to be very honest and hard on us because if I had made it at all self-aggrandizing or pretty or like, look at me, I'm terrific, the whole thing, I think, would have crumbled. Mm -hmm. So I was trying to express myself, frankly, quite brutally and because I'm, I'm a, you know, a bit of a jerk in the movie. Um, mm. And uh, I'm an obnoxious little kid, which I was. And uh, my wife will tell you I still am. <laughs> are you already thinking about what's, what, what you're doing next? Or where are you in that part of the process? Um, I don't know. You know, the truth is, is that this movie is still with me. Yeah. I only finished it about six weeks ago. And I'm having trouble shaking it. So that's probably why I spoke of sequels and so forth, because you, I'm still living in the experience. I, I try to be, you know, we talk about the method, as, as, as pretentious as this sounds, as the filmmaker, you try to give of yourself and there's still a piece of me in there. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that's pretentious at all. I, I can't imagine telling a story that is so personal and, and more vulnerable and then just moving on <laughs> Well, it's a weird one. You know, you said to me, you said, oh, reaction is strong. And it's a weird one because I have to disassociate myself from that stuff because if someone loves the movie, great. And if someone says, I hated that movie, it means they hate part of me. Mm. And they have the right to do that. They have the right to say that. But it hurts. So in a way, on this film, more than any other, I have to shut it out. Yeah. Well, I think it's a wonderful film, and, and, and it's currently in theaters, so I hope everyone will go check it out who hasn't seen it yet. And thank you, James, for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back on Thursday on Thanksgiving itself uh, for our regular roundtable conversation. In the meantime, find us at VanityFair.com. Find us on Twitter for now at HWD. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich and Rebecca. Becca M. Ford and David. David Canfield, 97. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. 